Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be this afternoon in our consecutive verse-by-verse exposition through this book. And I'm going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, The Danger of Drifting. The Danger of Drifting. Follow with me as I read Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. It was August the 1st, 2007, when the Interstate 35 bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota, collapsed into the Mississippi River. It was the evening rush hour, 13 people died, and 145 were injured. It was an eight-lane bridge, 1,900 feet long. A University of Minnesota civil engineer, in a report that was given to the Minnesota Department of Transportation, noted that the bridge is considered to be a non-redundant structure. What that means is that if there is one member that fails, the entire bridge can collapse. The key factor is that there are only four pylons that were holding up the particular arch where the bridge collapsed. Any damage that would be done to even one of the pylons would be absolutely catastrophic for the entire bridge. So engineers located the place of the failure, and they came to the conclusion that the problem was rust. Rust that gradually gathered, and it gradually piled up. And as you can imagine, over the course of time, the results were absolutely devastating. That's a perfect illustration of what Hebrews chapter 2 is teaching this afternoon. Don't let that happen to you. You need to pay careful attention to your heart and to your life because you don't want to let the rust of indifference or the rust of sermon hearing but not sermon doing or the rust of just doing nothing. You don't want that rust to come in. And you don't want that rust to bring devastation to your life and ultimately to your soul. Cling to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Believe on Christ. Now the big picture of Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, remember we've looked at Hebrews 1 the last couple of weeks. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, the author is giving the unrivaled glory of the Son. Remember those opening verses? Speaking of the Son, He is the heir of all things. He is the one who is the radiance of God's glory. He made the world. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He made purification of sins. He is the amazing, unrivaled, saving God. Amazing declarations in verses 1 to 3. And then verses 5 to 14 are the proofs. Here's why he's so great. Here's why the Son is better. Here's why you need to listen to him. But now, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the author is going to say, so what do you do about all this? You've heard the declaration. You've heard the proof of how great Jesus is, that he's better. So what? What are you going to do about it? How's it going to affect your life? Don't drift. But pay attention to the word. 
Now we come today, you have your Bible open, I just read it in Hebrews 2, we come to what's called a warning passage in the book of Hebrews, and this is the first of five of the warnings. Skim through these with me. In chapter 2, verse 1, this is a warning, verse 3. How are you going to escape if you neglect so great a salvation? And perhaps if you turn the page to chapter 4, you come to the next warning. Hebrews chapter 4, therefore, verse 1, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering the rest, any one of you might seem to come short of it. Oh, that the promise is there for you to be saved, but don't come short of it. There's a third warning. It's found in chapter 6. If you look at chapter 6, verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and they have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partake, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, you've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then you fall away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's the third warning. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have the fourth warning. Look at verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And then Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is the fifth warning. Hebrews 12, look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now, you need to remember when we're studying the book of Hebrews, remember, 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 this is a book that was originally a sermon. It was, it was a sermon. It was a preached message, a word of exhortation, as chapter 13, verse 22 calls it. It is written down for us by the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. It's perfect for us in our Bible, but it was originally a sermon. And what's so amazing about this is in the sermon, the author is going to break from his expounding the glory of Jesus, and he's going to go to exhortation. In other words, the author is going from exposition, and then he breaks into exhortation. You need to take action. He breaks from the lecturer in chapter 1, and now he becomes the preacher in chapter 2. You must take action. It's almost like you could illustrate it like an instructor. An instructor on a dangerous mission, he's giving details of what you need to know and what you need to do and how dangerous the mission is. And he's giving all the facts and all the data, but he kind of leaves that. And then he becomes almost the exhorter saying, here's what you need to do to preserve your life. That's what the author is doing here. He is giving the sermon exposition in chapter 1, the glory of Jesus, but now he's going to turn to exhortation. You must take action. And that's what a good preacher does. He's imploring, he's begging, he's urging, he's pleading, he's wooing, he's demanding, he's calling, he's warning, he's summoning. In light of what you've heard, what are you going to do about it? That's what the author is doing. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 2. We need to understand, I've, said, I've called him author, the author, but I've named him auctor. That's the Latin word for the originator. We don't know who wrote the book, and so we've affectionately called him auctor together. That's the Latin title for author. What is Octor doing? Well, in verse 1, look in your Bible. Here's what he's doing. He's breaking into exhortation. He's breaking into sermonic plea. He's appealing. He's persuading. And he wants to tell you to act. Verse 1. For this reason. Remember, this, this is a sermon. In light of everything I just said in chapter 1. I told you how great the Son is. I proved to you how great the Son is. 
I told you the the glory of the Son. I proved it from Old Testament revelation. I told you this for this reason. Verse 1, look in your Bible. We must pay much closer attention. We must. This is beautiful in the original Greek. The words begin with the letter P. It, It makes it memorable. It makes it memorable. He's not only a rhetorical genius in his sermonic writing style, but he's calling action. You must pay closer attention. The Greek word we must means you have no other option. I mean, you you need to feel the weight of that. You need to feel the, the, the pressing upon your soul from Octor. What does he want? You have no other option. This is the only way to respond to the glory of the Son. We must, verse 1, pay much closer attention to what we've heard. I like the King James version. The King James says, we must give the more earnest heed. Even the New Living Translation has, you need to listen very carefully. Another contemporary version says, you need to give your full attention to this. Pay attention. It's like the preacher is pounding the pulpit saying, listen up. Listen up. Interestingly, in verse 1, when he says we have to pay much closer attention, it's the same word in Acts chapter 20. Verse 28, when Paul's preaching and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 21, speaking of the end times. Verse 34, be on your guard, pay attention so that your hearts are not weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness as you await the coming of the Lord. Be paying attention. I mean, do you sense the seriousness of, of, of what Octor is doing? Do you sense how he wants to get your attention? How, how he's, he's like zooming in. He's like a laser focus on your heart. He wants you to pay attention. Why? Look at verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away from it. Oh, the word drift is so amazing in the original Greek language. It's a nautical word, a nautical word from the boats that were on the waters. It was used for ships that would drift with the current. It was used of a ship that would miss the harbor that it intended to enter because of the strong winds or the strong currents that took the boat a different direction. What's so important is that drifting is not what happens intentionally, but simply something that happens, get this, by doing nothing. Pay attention so that you don't drift. Pay attention so that you don't drift by doing nothing. Or maybe we could even translate it so that you don't drift from unconcern. It's like the Kirkland family. When we go to the beach a couple times a year, we have this this red canopy tent that we sort of stake out on the beach. And that's sort of our home base. And we go to the water and we play and we boogie board and we catch the waves and we throw balls and we have a great time. But all the kids know that when we're out in the water catching the waves, we got to keep our eye back on that red tent. Why? Because without even realizing it, we begin to drift. We begin to drift. And every year it happens. Every single trip it inevitably happens. Where we're all out there together. And somebody will say, there's our red tent way over there. We've drifted so far. We didn't intend to. We didn't want to. But it just happened. That's what the author is saying. Be careful. Don't let that happen to you. Al Mohler put it so well when he was commenting on this. He said, there are two options in the Christian life. You're either sailing forward in fidelity or you're drifting backwards in faithlessness. There's no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. Now think about that with your Christian life. Think about that with your current 
walk with Christ? Are you advancing? Are you sailing forward? Or are you in a season of drifting? Are you in a season of drifting? You know, what's humbling about this is you you don't need to angrily oppose the gospel. You don't need to violently reject the message of the gospel to suffer loss. All you've got to do is drift. Sleepily drift while the waves and the currents of this world lull you to sleep and you drift into the open sea of darkness. Ultimately, to one's own doom. I was reading about about a Russian doctor. She was 55 years old. She was rescued off of the coast of Greece after floating out at sea for 21 hours on an inflatable air mattress. She, she was on a vacation and was on one of the Greek islands and was on this, this air mattress and she fell asleep being lulled by the steady little waves And over the course of time, she was carried away by the strong currents way off the shore of the Greek island, and she was spotted by emergency workers seven miles off of shore. Seven miles. She floated through the entire night, and she was reportedly fried alive by the hot sun the following day. She had to immediately go to the hospital for treatment for exposure, and she had severe heart problems because of that. The danger of drifting physically for her, spiritually for all of us. See the danger of drifting. That's what Octor wants you to know in verse 1. For this reason, we've got to pay much closer attention. We've got to give our full attention to this. We have no other option. We have to make sure that we don't drift. Don't drift. What I want to do is show you from the text the danger of drifting. I want to call you in the words of Octor in these opening four verses, I want to call you to not drift. And I want to tell you this for two reasons, and that's our outline. I want to give you two reasons of the danger of drifting. Why should you not drift? Why should you be on guard? Why should you pay attention to this? Why must you give careful attention and heed to this? For two reasons. Number one, because of the seriousness of the warning. And then number two, because of the source of the word. We will walk through this together. Number one, let's begin with the danger of drifting. For the first reason, it's found in verses two and three. Don't drift, number one, because of the seriousness of the warning. It's serious. Now, you've been there, right? You're driving down the highway, driving down the freeway, and you see those bright orange signs. It's a warning. It's an alert Workers ahead. You hit a worker and you lose your license and you're fined $10,000. You've seen that, right? Or the tornado siren goes off. It's a warning. It's meant to warn you to take action. Octor is even going to do it later in the book. Hebrews 12, verse 25. How much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. You see that little word for, that's the author saying, let me me give you the reasons. Let me explain what I just said. Don't drift, pay attention. Let me explain. For, verse 2, the word, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In verse 2, when he talks about the word that is spoken through angels being unalterable, that's a word for the law. It's a word for the Old Testament. We know that from Galatians chapter 3, tells us in verse 19, why the law? 
It was added because of transgressions. It was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. So we know that in some way, God gave the law to Moses mediated through angels. That's what he says in verse 2. Do you see it there in your Bible? If the word that was spoken through angels, meaning the law, if the Old Testament law, if it proved unalterable, if it wasn't, if it wasn't changeable, if it was firm, if it was fixed, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Well, we, we know that, right? I mean, you obey in the Old Testament times, and many people were penal- penalized. They had penalties. Uzzah stretched out his hand and he touched the ark. He was struck dead. Miriam sinned and God struck her with leprosy. Moses didn't enter the promised land because of his irreverence and his disobedience. You and I know this. In the Old Testament, people were stoned to death. The ground opened up and swallowed some in the book of Numbers. Fire comes down from heaven and strikes other people. God sent plagues among the people and pestilence and famine for those who sinned. Exile. We we understand this. In the Old Testament, if you sinned, there were consequences according to the law. And, And they were bad. I'm not minimizing those. They were bad. They were severe. But they were temporal. They were temporal. You sin according to the Old Testament law, you're punished. You're punished. If you disobey under the law, it was bad and there was a penalty. But here's the point that Octor is making. If you drift, if you disobey, if you wander, if you disbelieve, and if you reject the gospel, there's a worse. Look, the penalty under the Old Testament law was was painful, but the penalty of rejecting Christ is eternal. Okay, if the word spoken through angels was unalterable and all of those sins received a penalty. Yes, we know that. Now look at verse 3 in your Bible. Look at what Octor says to you. How will we escape? How, How will we ourselves It's emphatic. How are we going to escape? There's no wiggling out. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word escape in verse 3 is the same word that Jesus used in Luke 21, 36, speaking of the end times. Pray that you might escape all of these things. Speaking of the seven-year tribulation period, but of course it leads to the future wrath and hell. Romans chapter 2 verse 3 says, How will you escape the judgment of God? Speaking of those who do not repent. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, That those who are living in comfort and ease, the day of the Lord will come upon them unaware and destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Same word. How will we escape? Verse 3, look at it. If we neglect. Now, when you and I read the word neglect, you might have a lot of different ideas that come into your mind. Neglecting something. Oh, I neglected to do this. Oh, I neglected to do that. You know what the word is? If you're careless. If you ignore it. If you're unconcerned about so great a salvation. How are you going to escape if you ignore it? Octor is saying. How are you going to escape eternal hell if you ignore, if you're careless, if you're unconcerned about your soul? One writer put it like this. What must I do to be lost? Answer, nothing. Just drift through life. Just coast through life and pay attention to other things, anything else. 
Akdor in verses 2 and 3 is saying to the congregation, don't drift. Oh, pay attention to these things. Don't drift. See the danger of drifting. Why? Because of the seriousness of the warning. If you drift, how are you going to escape? The second reason that Akdor gives, I want you to see this here in your Bible. Look at number two. The danger of drifting. Number two, here's the second reason. Because of the source of the word. You know, you and I are drowning in this ocean of communication and media and advertisements and images and apps. I mean, at all times, everywhere, someone is trying to get your attention to deliver some message to you. Commercials and billboards and Twitter and texts and political ads and TV preachers and entertainment and concerts and radio and social media and all the conversations and a million other things are all trying to get your attention. But that's not the authority. But none of those things really have the divine source. Now, Octor, the preacher is going to beg you, wake up, pay attention, don't drift away. Look at verse 3, middle of the verse. He says in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Then he says this, after it was, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He says in verse three that this gospel, this word of salvation came first spoken through the Lord. That's Jesus in his life, in his ministry, in his preaching, in his proclamation. It was spoken through the Lord. And then Octor, the author says, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Meaning the original hearers who were there with the Lord, they were the apostles, they passed it on to us. And it was confirmed to us. You know what that tells us? That you and I can depend upon the apostolic testimony of the word of God. If you want to, very quickly, look with me at 1 John chapter 1. Notice the apostolic testimony. John, one of the twelve apostles, is writing this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. Verse three, see this in your Bible. What we have seen and heard, we're proclaiming to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Maybe in your Bible, turn back just a page to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. See the the trustworthiness of the apostolic testimony. 2 Peter 1, 16. Peter says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's referring to the transfiguration. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance. Peter says, I was there. I was there when Jesus was transfigured. I heard the heavenly voice. And we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure than that experience. To which you do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What is Octor doing? He Going back to Hebrews 2 now, Octor is saying the word of the gospel, the word of salvation was spoken through the Lord Jesus first, and then it was confirmed to us by those who originally heard it, the apostles. The message is clear. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. Octor is saying, listen up. Listen up. It was spoken by the Lord. It was attested by those who heard. The apostles were the eyewitnesses. They laid the foundation of the church. The message of the gospel has come down to you and me by credible eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And then verse 4. God testified with them by signs and wonders. Little footnote, that's a significant theological point to show that miraculous signs and wonders of the apostolic type have ceased. Verse 4, God testified with them, the apostles, the original eyewitnesses. And how did God testify to his word? By signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. God confirmed the validity and the power of the message through miracles. This is so interesting. We are certainly living in times where people are enamored by miracles. But if you study miracles in the Bible, you'll find that they are usually not uniformly distributed all across human history. They occur in clusters in certain times. They occur in clusters in unique times in redemptive history. For example, most eras of church redemptive history did not for the most part, did not have miracles. But there's really three main eras that have had miracles. Moses and Joshua. Second of all, Elijah and Elisha. And then third, Jesus and the apostles. That's generally it for all of redemptive history. And then in the future, in the seven-year tribulation with the two witnesses and the 144,000 in the tribulation era, there will be a fourth era, the fourth time where God will bring miracles. But why miracles? Why all of this in verse 4? Well, because miracles attest, miracles validate God's major works. They, 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 don't, they are, are not just cool things to people who are observing to wow people. Look at that cool miracle. God did miracles to validate the proclamation of the gospel. The focus was never to be on the miracle. The focus was to be on what the miracle pointed to. The message of the gospel. God is the one who testified. With those eyewitnesses, how did God testify with them? By signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. What's the point of all of this? Look to the testimony of the word. See the law of God. See the miracles of God. And they all testify to a great source. Don't ignore God's word. Pay attention. Pay attention. That's the warning. Verses 1 to 4. That's what Octor is doing. He leaves the exposition and he comes to exhortation. He leaves the lecture and he comes to implementation and what you must do. By the way, Look in your Bible at verse 3. Did you see in verse 3 how Octor called it 
so great a salvation. Did you see that there in verse 3? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Why is it so great a salvation? Why does he put it in those terms? Because it's from a great God. It's so great a salvation because it's, it's of a great Christ. It's a great salvation because it's from a great wrath. It's so great a salvation because it is of a great need that you all have. All humanity has it. It is so great a salvation because it is from a great grace. It is from a great grace. It is so great a salvation. Because it comes at a great price. It comes at a great price. It's a great salvation because it's the great solution. It's it's what you need more than anything else. Look, boys and girls, men and women, single, married, whatever season of life you're in, this is what you need more than anything else in all the world. You need to know so great. A salvation. It's so great because it comes from a great source. It comes from God. And what is Octor doing? He cares about the people in the congregation. He loves them dearly. And as he, as he is shifting to personal application, as he is specifically turning, as it were, his focus to the hearts of the hearers, he says to them, don't show up on judgment day having neglected so great a salvation. Don't show up on Judgment Day being careless about your salvation. Don't ignore this. And you know what's a little bit scary? He's preaching in the context of the church. There are goats among the sheep, there are tares. Among the wheat. Like a good preacher, Octor knows. Oh, there, there are believers. And there are some who are not, who are hanging around the believers. In our distracted era, in our busy lives, and with our hearts that are prone to wander. Do you have anchor in Christ? Do you have anchor in Christ? Are are you a professor of religion, but not a possessor of Christ? We meet them all the time. We, we, We meet them all the time. There's a lot of people who are professors. They profess faith in Christ. But they don't possess eternal life. I mean, there are some who are churchgoers, but they're not Christ lovers. Maybe there are untold millions that are right now screaming in hell who were churchgoers. But they weren't Christ lovers. What about you? I mean, I mean, to drift, all you have to do is nothing. That's what's so sobering about this. To drift. It's not violence, it's indifference. One fellow pastor put it like this. He said, my fear for you as your pastor is not outside aggression, but inside apathy. My fear for you, church congregation, is not spears, but sports. My fear for you is not prison, but Pinterest. My fear for you is not arrest, but entertainment. My fear for you is not violence, but mildness. My fear for you is not bombs or boiling oil, but busyness. 
These are the currents that threaten to pull us away from Jesus. And if we're not careful, we will be gently, cozily, comfortably distracted to death. I so appreciate those heartfelt and honest words from that preacher. And those who do not pay attention to Christ, those who live their lives in apathy and they ignore and they're unconcerned about Christ and they don't cling to Jesus and they don't rest in him. Hear this. Whatever they profess, they prove that they've never had salvation to begin with. And Octor knows that. Pay attention. Guard. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What has been so sobering for me in my study and prayer time is the main warning in these verses. The main warning is not so much for the Christ rejectors, but for the Christ neglectors. It's it's not outright rebellion. It's shrug it off inattention. Inattention. I mean, look, we, we all understand it's easy to hang with the right people. It's easy to talk like God's people do. It's easy to, to listen to the sermons and the podcasts and, and do the different activities that God's people do. Judas did it. It's easy to do those things, but not yourself. Be a child of God. And it happens in a life of drifting, of inattention, of neglect. What what are some ways that people drift? What does it look like? This is the main danger, to drift. Well, you can drift by inattention. Inattention. Not paying attention. Not giving heed to the things of the Lord. Second, people can drift by impenitence. Lack of repentance. That was a great sermon. That was a great Bible study. A great podcast. That was a great book. I've read the Bible. But even in the conviction, there is no repentance. Some can drift, third, by indifference. Oh, yeah, that, that, that was great. What, what, what an excellent time together. Great study in the word, but just indifferent. No, no urgency, no zeal, no resolve. Some drift forth by intoxication with the world. You live in the world, and you're of the world, and you think like the world, and you talk like the world, and you imbibe the things of the world, and you're intoxicated with the world. Number five, some drift by imprecision. Imprecision, lack of theological precision. Yeah, I know that they're a seeker friendly. I know they're health, wealth, prosperity. I know they deny the Trinity. I know this, but let's sort of major on the things that we agree on. Some drift, number six, by inaction. Inaction. I mean, there's just, there's just a refusal to trust. There's a head knowledge, but not a life submission. And some drift, seventh, By inculcation, just inculcating, taking in everything, anything and everything but Christ. Don't drift, Octor is saying. Don't drift. I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. Hear me very, very clearly. True Christians, genuine Christians can never lose their salvation. The Bible makes that so clear. The book of Hebrews is going to make that so clear. What God works in your soul savingly can never be taken away from you. However, however, 
There are many who think that they are Christians when in fact they're not. They're deceived. They're outward professors, but not inward possessors. These are the people when you say, hey, tell me your salvation. Well, I did this. I was born a Christian. I've always done this. I did this. I did this. Yeah, I, I, I accepted Christ. I prayed the prayer. I did this. I did this. And that's what they think the gospel is. But there's no mention of Christ. And there's every mention of what they've done. Some trust in their works for Christ rather than in the finished work of Christ. Many know about Jesus, but Octor knows. Many know about Jesus, but many will end up in hell forever. They'll be lost. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been given life. They've not submitted to Christ. They've not received him as Lord. What about you? What about you? You know, we, we, we hear this. I think of the account in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus was at the Last Supper with the disciples. Can you imagine the setting? Can you imagine the emotion when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me? And the disciples said, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? They took that warning seriously to themselves. I think we do well to put ourselves in that position. Could it be me? Could it be me? Could I drift? Could I be unconcerned and indifferent and apathetic toward the Lord? It's the danger of mere professors of religion who are not true possessors of Christ. Now, the danger of drifting is true for all of us. I mean, even as believers here, I battle with this. You battle with this. We, we don't want to drift from Christ, our Savior. Let me give you a few pastoral, a few pastoral warnings, maybe some indicators that as a Christian, Kind of like the Kirkland family when we were drifting in the ocean from our red tent and we'd have to come back. There are times in our Christian life when we drift sometimes. Well, how do you know? What are indicators that you're drifting? I had about 25 in my notes, but I'll boil it down to maybe a few. Your wonder and awe of Christ begins to wane. Your, your priority of the word of God begins to take the back seat. And one of the common responses that many people give in this is, you know, I, I know I should be spending more time in the Word. Yeah, I know, we all should be. But has the Word taken back seat in your life? Have the, have the realities of heaven and hell become distant? Have they become unreal? Have they become unappealing? That might be an indicator that you're beginning to drift. Maybe another indicator that you're drifting is that you just crumble and you fall apart at the first sign of suffering in your life. The first sign of opposition and persecution for the gospel and you just wither. Another indicator that maybe you're drifting is prayer, Bible study, witnessing, church are more of a duty than a delight. Another indicator that perhaps we may be drifting is the atoning work of Christ at Calvary doesn't grip and gladden me. Another indicator that we could be drifting is you become a spiritual hermit, autonomous, not depending upon the body of Christ to help and support you. Another indicator that one could be drifting is when your theology intake 
is more sermons and podcasts and books and YouTubes more than the study of Scripture itself. Another indication that you could be drifting is a lack of joy in Christ. Another indication that you could be drifting is you're looking for something more outside of Christ. Yeah, I believed in Christ. Yeah, I did that, but... I want this feeling. I want this experience. I believe this. I believe this. I want this. I need this. Another indication that you could be drifting is you're relying and rejoicing more in the benefits of Christ, more than the beauty of Christ himself. Is this you? And if that's you... Hear it from the love of the Holy Spirit. He chastens those whom he loves. This isn't him saying, you unconverted, wicked rebel. It's him saying, do you see that tent over there? You're drifting. You got to go back to it. Do you see Christ? You're beginning to drift. Come back to him. Hold on to him. Cling to him. Be near to him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How will we escape if we neglect? Okay, so we want to listen well to the word, don't we? We want to listen well to the word. We, we want to benefit from the word. I mean, we, we don't want to drift. We don't want to neglect it. We don't want to have inactivity. We don't want to be he- sermon hearers, but not sermon doers. We don't want to be filled with head knowledge and then die in that state with our hearts empty. We don't want to do that. So how do we ensure that we are hearing the word well and our anchorage is firm in Christ? First. Meditate before the word is preached. Take that sermon passage that you know that is going to be preached the following Sunday. And you read it. And you meditate on it. And you pray through it. And you let it become part of your heart and your thinking. Second, you study as you're able Study as you're able. Invest in a good commentary to help you. It could be through the book of Hebrews. It could be through another book that you're studying in God's word as well. Invest in a good commentary if you need help with that. See one of the elders. Third, another way that we can be good hearers and anchoring our hearts in the word well. Third, edify and discuss. Talk and pray with one another. When the sermon has concluded being preached, the sermon is about to begin to be lived. Talk with the friends. Talk with one another. Encourage one another. How did the word of God impact you? How how can you grow in light of what you've learned? How can I pray for you this week? What did God show you from the word of God? On the car ride home, you're talking with your spouse. Over dinner afterward, you're talking with those that you have hospitality with. Moms and dads, you're interacting and engaging with your children over the things that you hear. We want to encourage one another and discuss. Fourth, we want to implement specifically Yes, we listen to the word, but Jesus says if you merely hear the word but you don't act upon it, you're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. What's building your house on the rock in that context of Matthew 7? It's hearing the word and doing it. So we want to implement maybe not 25 things from every sermon, but maybe pick one or two things. This week. I want to implement this. Another way that we can be good sermon hearers, paying attention to what we hear, is to study further. This is a, an interesting, just a pastoral counsel. Develop the habit of, of addressing questions that you have from the text. 
Maybe if there's something that the teacher or the preacher says, maybe it's a theological doctrine, maybe it's a verse, maybe it's a cross-reference, maybe it's something that's said and you thought, I'm, I've not, I'm not familiar with this. Go home and study it further. Research it. And then finally, number six, another way to be a good hearer of the word is to humbly grow. Just humbly grow. Cultivate humility, trembling at God's holy word. But oh, friends, for all of us here, all of us here, do you hear afresh the danger of drifting? Do do, 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 do you hear how there are some, Octor knows it, they're hanging around the midst of the believers But some are not believers. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's like your your toes are at the door of heaven. It's like you're on the front porch of heaven and you've rung the doorbell and the door is thrown open through Jesus and your your toes are right there at the threshold, but you've not come in yet. Will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Take action today. And that's what Octor is going to say in chapters 3 and 4. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today. Today is the day to enter in. By God's grace, let's not drift. Believers, let's not drift. For all of us, hear afresh the warning from God through the sermon that Octor gives. Pay close attention to what you hear. Pay attention so that you don't drift. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was years ago... At the Niagara Falls, there was a young man who was a a guide. He was a guide, and he had a a bit of time to spare one afternoon in between his tours that he led. And so this young man moored his boat well above the falls, and he laid down in the boat just to rest for a little bit one afternoon. He moored his boat well above the falls, and, and he was rocked by the current, and he fell asleep. He was swaying back and forth in the current. The boat finally worked itself loose and it began to drift downstream. Spectators, all all these onlookers and all the tourists were there and they, they were on the shore and they saw the danger and they were shouting at the young man to awaken him, but he was still asleep. He was rapidly being swept toward the falls. At one point, thankfully, the boat came to rest against a rock that was protruding midstream. Seeing the chance, all the onlookers yell even louder. They muster up all of their efforts to awaken the sleeping man by shouting loudly, Get on the rock! Get on the rock! Get on the rock right now! And in the swirling water, the boat with the sleeping passenger, it soon twisted and it cleared the rock and it was headed for the falls. You could imagine what happened. At last, the guide was awakened. He was awakened by the thundering roar of the massive falls and it was too late. He plunged helplessly over the falls to his own death. It was too late. How how terrible asleep in the boat calmly and unconsciously as it were just sort of drifting into the very jaws of death. And yet how fitting that is, isn't it? How fitting that is, whereby it illustrates the neglect of so many toward the salvation of their souls. 
Many are asleep in their sins. Many are lulled by temporary pleasures. Many are falsely believing in an experience they had many years ago. Many are soothed into a false confidence by their dependence on their religiosity. And yet the point of that story so fittingly illustrates, don't let this be you. Don't drift. Don't neglect. Don't ignore For how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? Praise be to God that there is a great salvation and a great Savior who is worthy of your trust. And he welcomes us to come to him and to come to him and to come to him. And to cling to him again. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may it be that we would cling to Christ. May we cling to him with all that we are. May there be none in the meeting today. None in the assembly today. Young children, teenagers, older men and women. Who would drift to their own doom in hell. Oh God, by your mercy, deliver, deliver, deliver. Help us as true believers to not drift from our blessed and beautiful and perfect Savior. Help us to cling to him with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.